I have lit many candles, the old man said, and burned them right down to the ends, through all the dark hours the Lord sends. But I plighted my youth to a fierce search for truth, and in manhood I held to my vow. Still she eludes me, the old man said, and I'm hunting for candlelights now. Hello, and welcome to Hunting for Candle Ends. I'm your host, Neil. The poem you just heard was from a person called Herman Old, who I know nothing about. I was searching for ideas for names for this podcast, and I managed to find this eBay auction of some poems by this guy, Herman Old. And I'd been using the name Candle Ends for a while, and I wanted to use it in the podcast because I already have CandleEnds.com. And I managed to find that poem out of the blue. So this is my new podcast, and it's a little bit of a departure for me. I had done a podcast for a while called The Nether Regions, which was kind of a sound collage, radio program, music, sound effects, weird stuff. Whatever I wanted to put in there, I did. This I'm trying to make a little bit more formal. So I don't know exactly what category to to put this in, since there's going to be some music content, there's going to be movie discussions, and I expect it's going to progress as I feel like doing different things with the podcast. Now in this episode, we're going to start off with my interview with Elliot Smith, and that was from October 2000, and after that, we're going to go into movie reviews from my friend Mike. Mike's going to talk about his favorite movies from uh, 2012. And after that, I might have a couple recommendations of my own, and then we're going to go to a song, and that'll be the end of this first episode of Hunting for Candlelands. Up first, you're going to hear my interview with Elliot Smith. As I mentioned, I interviewed Elliot in October of 2000, and the circumstances of it were I was um, working for a, a newspaper in Boulder, Colorado called Soundboard Magazine. And I also had a full-time job, so the only way I could do this interview was to run into somebody else's office who had who had an office, I, I, I sat at a desk, and close the door and use their phone to record the, the interview and hope they didn't come back before I was done. I was also, as you probably can tell, a little bit nervous, and so I, I'm not going to say this is the best, the best interview ever, but it's pretty neat to have an interview with Elliot Smith to present for you. My editor at the time, Matt, said that, you know, he was trying to, he he looked at the questions that I had to ask him, and he, he said, look, what I want you to get at is try to find out what turns him on. And I was trying to figure out a way to ask that, and that's why there's such a big pause at the end of the interview. Uh, the quality is not great. I recorded it on a mini tape, and I also had to adjust the speed because there was something wrong with it from when I recorded it, so... If you think it's, I didn't do a good job, let me know, and I can fix it for, uh, I can, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to know if the version I'm sending out there is actually, is actually really what, what we sounded like. I don't, don't want to make our, our voices sound too silly. Um, anyways, here's the uh, interview with Elliot Smith from October 2000, and I'll uh, talk with you after. Hello? Hi, Elliot. 
Hello. Hi, this is Neil from Soundboard Magazine in Colorado. Hi. Just calling to ask you a few questions. Okay. Cool. Um, well, I was going to sort of write a piece about you as a songwriter and as a composer, so I'll right. ask you some songwriting questions. Okay. Uh, the first question I wanted to ask was, why do you write songs? <laughs> yeah. That's one right off the bat. Yeah, that's a hard one. Um, probably because I just really liked records when I was a kid, you know, I wanted to learn how to do it, right, and, uh, you know, I don't know, that's a hard one to answer. Well, who would you say uh, inspired you to, to want to write songs? Uh, Easy Wonder, The Beatles, Clash. You wanted to, uh, now, what what was it, I guess, about the those that type of music, was it that they were expressing something, or was it just you liked the way they were structuring their songs together? I don't know. It's just kind of it's difficult to talk about, you know, because if you like how something sounds, you just kind of like it. And when you're a kid, it just seems like, oh, it's magic, you know? How'd they, how'd they do that? And um, so then <clears throat> you start trying to take it apart and see how it was built. Like, you know, some people like cars and they take them apart. Some people like songs, you know. How do you, uh, how do you know when you've written a good song or one that, you know, you'd want to put on an album? Well, I never know if it's a good song, but I know if I, if I still like it a little while later or not. I mean, at least half the songs I make up I don't really care for anymore after a couple days. But, um... But those don't usually make it to the album. No. Ho well, hopefully not. <laughs> so far, no. But, um... I think it, it feels like it's got some... some little reflection of life in it, even if it's just a fragment, then, uh, then I'm probably going to like it. And if it's some song that... I already knew I could do, then I won't like it. Gotcha. Do you, um, as, as far as the lyrics are concerned, concerned, would it be, uh, would a listener be wrong in assuming that the songs are from your own point of view? Yeah, they would be, but, but see, sometimes they are, you know, but not all of them. The listener would, <laughs> the so-called listener would, would, um, <clears throat> would be correct, and if they heard it sort of in the same way as they would listen to someone who was telling them a dream that they had. Right. So that you could, you know, you could see things about that person in the dream, but there's also a lot of the outside world getting in there, you know? As far as the, the music that you like, do you, um, do you find it ever useful or interesting to know the biographical information of, about the... Uh, the artist in question. Yeah, well, I did when I was a kid. I, um, yeah, I think it's maybe interesting, but, you know, some people don't really like to, to get into that stuff. They would just rather kind of do it and, and not, uh, I don't know, you know, there's so much focus on who somebody is as opposed to what they're actually doing. Yeah. Because you can't, you know, you can't make, you know, that's what fame is about. Yeah. But it's not what music is about. And it's nice to be able to separate the music from the person, so that's really 
difficult. Yeah. I guess I would agree with that. Um, Alright, what was my explanation here? What was your approach to recording different? Uh, how was your approach to recording different between figure 8 and XO? Uh, figure 8 was recorded faster with less. Um, Less talking about things with the producers. We'd already worked together and um, didn't have to really discuss much. Just sort of look at each other and be like, nah, not that amped. Right. You know? Um, other than that, I, I don't really know. It's just kind of quicker and easier. Was um, So when you recorded XO, was it um, sort of a new challenge for you to be able to work with this? with a, a new level of production and uh, yeah. the instruments you wanted and that sort of thing. Yeah, it was. It was, uh, I had access to all sorts of things that I didn't have access to before. So, yeah, it was new to me. Right. And um, as far as, as touring, I know you're, you have a big tour ahead of you. You've already been touring for quite a while. Mm-hmm. How is... Uh, what do you like about touring and performing live? I think it's just, uh, you got to do something with your time, you know? <laughs> Playing music for people is a good thing to do. I don't, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know, I just kind of wound up doing it, you know? Right. In, in some ways, do you prefer um, recording in the studio when you can take time to to redo things and polish things and that sort of thing. Well, I'm not a big fan of polishing things, although there are certain things that I'll redo. But I think a lot of times it you know, the law of diminishing returns if you keep on singing something too many times or I don't know. I I don't I'm not trying to make some perfect noise, you know, for live or in the studio. I think it's cool if the if it makes this mood and the mood isn't killed by contrivance and stuff then then that's pretty good. And if it's doing that then uh, I don't really care if there's mistakes in it. Gotcha. Uh, would you say you say I mean do you particularly when you write a song or, or when you perform a song do you you have somebody in mind for a lot of your songs? I mean, do you no. have the communications or not really? No, I usually have no one in mind. <laughs> <laughs> no one in particular. And maybe nobody at all. I just like doing it. What music have you yourself been uh, listening to lately that you've been enjoying? I've been listening to a lot of Stooges lately. Raw Power. You know that record? Yeah. And uh, this band called Oranger that I took on tour with me in Europe. Oranger. Oranger. But mostly, mostly this, yeah, Raw Power has been on permanent rotation lately. <laughs> Not sure why. Are there plans for for another album in, in a year or so? Or yeah. Anything yeah. concrete? Well, I've been I've recorded a few songs in the last couple months, or well, maybe it was a little bit before that. 
Um, no, there's no, like, hasn't gotten that far yet. Right. We've got to finish touring this record and then make plans for that. Right. So, um, nothing about a, you just don't have anything in mind as far as the sound or I think it's going to be smaller sounding and more, more driven by the lyrics. Um, also about recording, do you do you do you have a song all the way thought out before you start it, or do you um, do you just sort of let it go as you're as you're recording and decide what you need to add? Well, take away. I the song is usually complete as. You know, like a, an abstract structure or something. You know, like with the chords and the way those lyrics go. Yeah. And some songs I I do have like a I have it kind of mapped out in my head. Another, but a, a lot of them I don't. And it's sort of like, well, what's here? There's the drum set here. Let's see if this song would sound good with drums. No. Okay. Let's see if um. You know, whatever other instruments are around can add anything, or if they're just going to kind of sit on the song and do nothing, then we'll take them away again. Does that apply as well to some of your harmonies? And that? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So sometimes you'll record a song, and then later you'll uh, decide if it would be good with one or two harmonies as well. Yeah, but we usually, well, me and the, the producers, usually do them all of a piece, like, uh, you know, in all in a day, like one song at a time. As as far as just an example, um, something like, one, well, one, one of my favorite songs off the new album is Easy Way Out, and uh, how, would, how would something like that, how did, how did that song originate lyrically and then, then come to what it is on the album? Well, that was a... That was a pretty old song that um, that was around from the time of the previous record, and it um, kept meaning to record it, but uh, it's kind of it was for me it was one of those songs that just had to do it on the right day and not in the mood to do it, then it's not going to sound any good. Right. Yeah, I recorded it, and then, uh, and then, um, added some, like, Mellotron or Chamberlain or something to it. Cool. Um, now, as far as, as far as, um, uh, you, you say that maybe there's not somebody in your mind when you're, when you're recording something, so you're playing something, so, mm -hmm. um, what would you say that you that you feel some some emotion when you're performing or when you're? Uh, oh, of course, yeah. But it's nothing. It's nothing particular. It's nothing that you don't. You know, don't well, it's not like necessarily that. directed at people, you know, or at or at some specific person, or maybe not at people at all. Just sort of a. You know, when people are asleep, they're feeling emotions, but it's not. Uh, it's not a communication between them and someone else. You know, so, um, I don't know. You really spend your song sort of, uh, kind of communicate on a subconscious level. Yeah, well, yeah, hopefully, not to 
sound pretentious about it, but yeah, sure. I don't. I think that yeah, songs that don't communicate on a subconscious level are. I don't know. I wouldn't. Not so interested in that kind of music. Right. And are you? Uh, and I know you. I know you love music. Do you? Uh, but do you? Do you find yourself listening to music at all times of the day, or do you? Do you? Know, try to keep silent so that you can think about your own music, or how does how does that work? Well, I don't listen to it all day long. Thank God. Yeah. I mean. Um. Yeah. I mean, if I did that one thing all the time, it'd be. That would just kill it, you know. Yeah. So I do all the same things everybody else does. You know, I hang out with my friends. <laughs> you know, but yeah, I listen. I listen to records sometimes. I'm not like a huge connoisseur. I don't have a, lo- a whole lot of records. And on tour, I usually just kind of listen to whatever people put on the stereo. And if no one's put anything on, then I put on raw power. <laughs> <laughs> Are you more likely to to go out and buy something new if you were going to buy something, or or to, to browse through old records and then find something that that you'd be interested in? Um, honestly, I just I hardly ever buy records. Right. And if I did, um, I wouldn't. I'd probably just kind of look at everything and see if anything caught my eye. Right. So you mostly acquire records. Yeah, and I, and I'm, you know, I've been kind of around other people who've been on tour with me for a long time, and they always bring a lot of CDs, so I don't really need to, you know. Well, let me know um, how was uh, recording in Abbey Road. What was that like for you? I mean, I know you're. Good sounding place. Yeah. yeah. Was it? I mean, did you have a? Did it feel strange? I mean, was it was it weird recording with Beatles that recorded? Well, maybe for. Uh, it was yeah. It was a little. Yeah, it was a kick to walk in, you know. But once, once I started recording a song, it was sort of thinking about the song and wasn't really thinking about who had been in there. But yeah, it was kind of weird. One night after we were done, I was just sitting in there making up a song on the, on the piano they have there, and, which was used on like Penny Lane and stuff. And that was pretty cool. But I I don't know, I was, I was busy, you know, it's expensive and I had to get the shit done. Right. So. That was Alright, who are you currently touring with? Um, or who will you be touring with? In the U.S., it's, uh, they're called Granddaddy. Alright. Yeah. Cool. Uh, just a, cu- a couple of, of perhaps more random questions. Alright. So. <laughs> Um, I was wondering, I, I read somewhere you said you, know, you have, to, have to tell yourself to read a book once in a while. Mm-hmm. Have you been? Have you read any good books lately? Um, yeah, I read uh, a couple things by Mikhail Bulgakov, The Master and Margarita, and The Heart of a Dog. Those are good. 
not familiar with those. What are those? What kind of books are those? He's a Russian novelist from the you know first half of the 20th century. And uh, here's here's another somewhat random question. What what do you get excited about in life? <laughs> Does music get you excited? Well, yeah, you know, if it didn't, then I wouldn't. You know, why do it if it doesn't? Yeah, I guess that's the main thing, probably, for me. And and recording? Mm-hmm. All right. All right. I think I've asked everything I, I wanted to ask. All right, cool. Thanks for your time, man. And, Thank you. Um, it'll be great to see you when you come, come to Denver. All right, thanks. Well, thanks. Bye. Okay, bye. So that wraps up the interview. For those that don't know... Um, Elliot Smith died in October of 2003, uh, apparently by suicide. I'll try to get the article I wrote, the Elliot Smith article I wrote for Soundboard, up on the Facebook page. So definitely check that out. It's uh, Candlelens will be the Facebook page. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, at Candle underscore ends. Or go to my website, www.candleends.com. Up next, uh, this is the first part of my friend Mike Schwartz's review of some of the best movies of 2012. He gave me so much content that I decided to split it into two. I've known Mike for a long time, and at the end of every year, he often sends his friends and family long lists of some of the best movies, music, and books uh, from that year, which is perfect for someone like me who is often a few months behind the times. everybody this is mike schwartz here doing my first podcast ever and that was the melodica i went yesterday to the trading musician to buy a microphone for this podcast had 40 dollars in my hand and lo and behold they had a melodica on sale for 40 dollars. so i ended up walking out of the store with a melodica instead of a microphone and so you'll have to forgive me if the sound quality is bad because i'm using a cheap microphone and you'll also have to forgive me for my cheap rendition of the melodica to open this. But as I said, my name is Mike Schwartz, and I'm going to talk a bit about my favorite movies of last year. We're well into 2013, and so I figured why not take time to look back and talk a little bit about some of the underrated or underseen movies from last year, and I hope that uh, some of you who may be listening will seek these films out after after you hear this. Um, so might as well jump right in. So it wasn't a great year for films last year. In fact, it was a pretty shitty year for films. Uh, and you know, this is, this is coming on top of a really great year before that, in which I saw so many films in 2011 that I loved. So quite disappointing, but there's always great films, even in a bad year. And one thing that I've noticed every year that that's happening more and more frequently is that all the great films are being released in the last few months of the year, probably 
timing that timed to compete for the Academy Awards, and yet it's really playing havoc with my viewing schedule. I, I find that you know there's like very few really good films that I saw in the first six months of the year. They all came out in the last few months, and you know in November and in December, and it just means that I'm scrambling to see all these great films. Uh, especially because I like to put together a top 10 list. And so I might be going to the film, the cinemas to see double features nights, multiple nights in a row. Whereas for months of the year, I don't go to the cinema at all. So just a, a kind of strange thing that's been happening more and more that I think has been unfortunate and probably because of the Academy Awards. Uh, but there were good films this year. It wasn't all superheroes and sequels. Um, many good genre films this year, some excellent non-traditional films, animated films, music films, uh, just films that don't fit into easy categories. And those are the kinds of films I really, really like and look forward to telling you about. So without further ado, um, let's talk about one of my favorite films of the year, which is called Chico and Rita. And it is an animated film, and it's also a music film. It's a jazz film. Um, and I think the thing that I loved most about this film is that it really harkened back to these amazing, grand, you know, grand technicolor melodramas of early Hollywood that, you know, just broad canvas with the broadest story of lovers and romance and music and, you know, just had a lot of great traditional storytelling to it. And yet it was animated. And when I talk about the canvas being broad, I mean, literally, it's it's a broad canvas where this story is painted. And it's it's all hand painted, hand drawn animation. There's no CGI. There's no technology at play here. It's really just goes back to the earliest days of classic animation to, to Norman McLaren and Carolyn Leaf and the early animators um, who in the Hooblies and, and the wonderful heyday of animation where it, the medium was at its most expressive and surreal and beautiful. And the creator, the cartoonist behind this film is Javier Mariscal. Um, he, he was probably most known for creating the Olympic mascot for Barcelona in the 92 Olympics, but he's, he's known as an animator, as a cartoonist in Spain. And he worked with friend, uh, with Fernando Trueba who's a Spanish director on this film. And he also worked together with Trueba on his previous Latin jazz film, Calle 54. If you have not seen Calle 54, highly recommended. Lots of great vignettes of excellent Latin jazz performers. Um, and their, their story here is about Cuban jazz in the 40s and 50s, using the story of two lovers um, to, to kind of paint this story about the fusion between American jazz and Cuban Latin, Latino jazz and the wonderful music that was produced. And the two characters, Chico and Rita, are based on real-life characters. Um, Chico is based on Bebo Valdez, who's a jazz pianist. He's actually featured in Calle 54, as is his son, Chucho Valdez, still playing today. He actually composed much of the music to this film. And if there's any film that I would also recommend the soundtrack, um, absolutely this film. There were some great soundtracks this year, including The Hunger Games, Django Unchained, and this one. And I went out and I bought this soundtrack immediately after seeing the film, um, full of great compositions by Bebo um, Valdez and some good singing by Estrella Morente, who's a jazz, Latin jazz, Cuban jazz singer, uh, who also appears in the film in animated form. And Rita in the film is is also based on a Cuban singer, Rita Montaner, and also a little bit of Lena Horne in there as well. 
Um, and there's many, many cameos, not just Estrella Morente, but other Cuban jazz folks show up like Chano Pazo, uh, Chano Pozo, I should say, who's, um, percussion playing and who's a conguera from, uh, early days and from Dizzy Gillespie's group in the fifties, um, most famous for playing on Manteca as well as many other tunes. Um, and there's a lot of great other jazz luminaries who show up here. There's Charlie Parker and Ben Webster, early a young felonious monk, um, other Latin luminaries like Tito Puente and Miguelitos Valdez. Um, so great storytelling, wonderful, wonderful animation, some amazing scenes, including an excellent montage. That's a dream, dream sequence that Chico has on the boat from Havana to, uh, on his way to New York. And it's really all about what New York would, would, look like in the imagination of a Cuban pianist on his way there for the first time. It's got all the, you know, clips from old Hollywood musicals, um, you know, bits from Broadway plays, just all mixed together in his mind, making up this montage, this uh, mixture of, of dream New York. Excellent film. Definitely worth seeking out. Let's see. What else? I guess since I'm talking a little bit about music and film, another great film that featured some some interesting use of music is The Deep Blue Sea. Um, this film is available on Instant Watch on Netflix, so you all can see it as soon as you finish hearing this if you want. And it's a period adaptation by Terrence Davies that um, has some gorgeous scenes to it. It's really it's about unrequited love. It reminded me a little bit of I Am Love, the Italian film from a few years ago um, that also featured a lover a jilted lover and uh, you know had some some amazing music as well uh, the lead character in the deep blue sea is rachel weish and she's really excellent she is my my pick for the academy award for best actress this year she plays hester a married woman who plays for who falls for a young playboy played by tom hiddleston and you know the, the thing about this film that really really got me is it portrays a kind of romantic debasement that i don't think I've ever seen on screen before. Uh, just the extent that uh, Hester will go to to <laughs> to debase herself for her love, to sacrifice herself for her lover—it's unbelievable. I mean, it's the height of obsession, and yet at the same time, she knows she's doing herself serious harm and those around her, including her husband. Yet she can't stop herself. She's compelled to do this. She also knows very logically that her her young lover is not interested in her in the slightest. Um, but, you know, at the same time, she's compelled to plumb the depths of her love and, you know, just subject herself to the most humiliating treatment. And if that doesn't sound that entertaining to watch, believe me, it's very, very fascinating. I mean, I, it's fascinating to watch somebody, an intelligent woman, a beautiful woman, um, go through this. And yet at the same time, you keep hoping that she pulls out of it, that she snaps awake, that she is able to... Uh, resist this this compulsion that she has and i mentioned music earlier the film has a 10, 15 minute wordless opening set to samuel barber's concerto for violin and orchestra that's really really amazing it starts with hester at her most suicidal and it just from there the film has some amazing musical sequences some beautiful scenes and imagery and you got to stick with it to the ending it's it will redeem everything that came before. Highly recommended. Check it out on Netflix Instant Watch. All right. So since I'm talking about films that begin with suicidal main characters, and since I mentioned there were some great genre films this year, 
I also want to talk about another film, a great genre film, that came out really, really early in the year. It was mostly forgotten because it came out so early. It's called The Grey. And uh, it's some people dismiss this film because it's really just a film about Liam Neeson versus wolves. But to those critics, I I respond, but it's a film about Liam Neeson versus wolves. I mean, what more do you need in a film? You know, there's, it's also true that Liam Neeson versus bad guys, and there's also some Liam Neeson versus himself in the film, but really, it's all about the wolves. And, uh, you know, normally I'd be suspicious of a film like that because I, I'm a huge fan of wolves. They're amazing creatures. They're not like what they're usually portrayed. They're not predators and hunters. They're, really intelligent amazing creatures and yet most most of the time wolves get a very bad rep in films and in books and they're portrayed as killers or hunters and i I must say that is the case in this film as well although liam neeson's character who he plays a uh a man who's hired to protect oil workers in the north slope of alaska from the wolves uh, he's got a strange communion with the wolves in the film he actually relates more to wolves than to human beings and you know, there's there's some amazing scenes of him relating to the wolves here. It's not really just, a, you know, traditional uh, genre film or exploitation film of wolves killing killing humans. But it does have some of that as well. The wolves themselves are an amazing combination of actual live wolves, CGI and animatronics. And, you know, there's some amazing scenes that had me jumping out of my seat. It, there's air, scenes where you just see the green eyes of the wolves glowing in the dark. Others where you hear this amazing sound design where they're howling and screaming and they sound almost human. Uh, it's really scary, actually. And, you know, I, I guarantee that there'll be a few moments where you jump straight out of your seat when you watch this film. Uh, it's a very great film. It's not, you know, it's not going to win any Oscars, but definitely recommend it. Uh, and it's another film in the late period Liam Neeson action figure mold and you know i i'm not a big fan of the taken films and other films like that but this one you know he liam neeson really pulls out all the stops here and i really also couldn't help you know his character i mentioned was suicidal at the beginning of the film because of the loss of a lover and i couldn't help but think of liam neeson's own loss with the death of his wife natasha richardson a few years ago uh, the film brings to mind all of those things, and it really does actually pose some big questions. It's not just an action film. Uh, it gets into some existentialism and asks questions about mortality and life itself and, you know, really a lot of deep, deep thoughts going on behind there. It's almost like an art film hidden within a typical genre exploitation film. Which, you know, I mentioned there's some great genre films this year, and, and mention a few others really quickly. There's Cabin in the Woods, which was probably the most fun I had at the cinema this year. Great, great horror parody. What the Scream films really should have been um, just has some excellent imagery. Uh, great Indonesian action martial arts film called The Raid Redemption, which I would recommend as well in the, in the genre film category. And locally here in Seattle, where I'm recording this, there was a science fiction film called Chronicle about some young boys who acquire superpowers and Gra- grapple with how how they should use them and they're young boys so it's no spoiler to tell you that they don't go to save the world they basically use them for pranks and games and fun but it's it's a great little film and it shows what you can do with the small budget um you know as far as superhero movies go I'm not a big fan but i did see the avengers and i thought it was really one of the better superhero movies that i've seen and probably can be chalked up to joss whedon but um would recommend that absolutely and 
also um, in the genre film category was a horror film called The Snowtown Murders, which I really wouldn't recommend to everyone. It's uh, kind of in the in the vein of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, and it's almost unwatchable, but really, really fascinating about some real-life murders that occurred in Australia. Definitely recommend that. And as far as disturbing films go, uh, there's a film called Compliance. You may have heard about this. It's based on a real-life uh, incident that occurred in a fast-food restaurant. And I actually saw the, the camera footage from this real-life incident on some cheesy TV show. Maybe it was hard copy. Um, essentially, a prank caller calls up a fast-food restaurant manager, poses as a cop, and convinces the fast-food restaurant manager that one of his one of her employees has been stealing. And then from there, the film just shows how this prank caller is able to make this this manager and other figure, other characters as well, do his bidding. And uh, it's really disturbing to 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 think about uh, what you know, especially since it's based on on a true story and and the fact that people will blindly follow authority to the darkest, deepest ends and. The film goes a little farther than the real-life incidents, I should say, but it's really disturbing, but really, really interesting and pretty depressing as well. So certainly not for everybody. So that concludes the first part of Mike's look back on 2012. We'll have the second part of that next week. And... Hopefully some further contributions from Mike. Mike can be found on Twitter at the Happy Wanderer 13 is his Twitter handle. I just thought I'd mention a couple things I wanted to recommend and review. Uh, for one thing, I just bought the new My Bloody Valentine album. I know, I'm not the first, but uh, I just wanted to say in case you're wondering, it's very good. You should check it out. Also, I managed to see uh, Jeff Mangum recently. Uh, he came out to Detroit, and I checked out the concert. I really enjoyed it, and it was strange. It was uh, He did no new songs at all, and when asked by the audience, he said he may never do another album. Yet there was it was something important still about all of us there hearing songs we'd heard before, roughly in the same way that we had already heard them. Uh, it, there was a sense that he was saying he wasn't, he hadn't turned his back on his fans. He was happy to play the old songs for us. Um, at one point he had everybody come up to the front and played all, all throughout the concert. He wanted us all to sing along, which was nice too. But it is a strange thing when you're going to a concert and there's nothing especially new there makes you wonder, why are you doing this? And yet, for me, as somebody who had been wanting to see Neutral Milk Hotel or Jeff Mangum um, for a long time, and basically, you know, for my list of top, my top favorite, my favorite albums, In the Airplane Over the Sea is on there. And I kind of assumed I'd never see him again, that he was going to be a recluse like another, another of my favorites, like Sid Barrett. And so just to even have him come out and play these songs, even if he had no plan on on making any new songs, it was, I think it was, it was important for me, it was important for a lot of other people, and I think we all enjoy the concert. So that's the end of uh, this first episode of Hunting for Candle Ends. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any comments, feel free to give us some feedback on iTunes. Um, 
Each week, though, I am going to include a song at the end, and sometimes it'll be by me. I record as candle ends, as you might have guessed. Um, sometimes it might be by somebody else. This week, this is a song I wrote entitled I Am Not a Work of Art, and it's uh, I'm going to put it up on Bandcamp, so if you wanted to buy it, go ahead and do that, or just enjoy it here. I recorded it in my bathroom. There was a project I was working on called Open Open uh, Open Mic Bathroom, where people would do um, song record songs in their bathroom. I never w- I never I never got very far with the whole project, but I did manage to record a few songs of my own in the bathroom. I should mention that at the time I pretty much had borderline laryngitis, so I always you know and this is this is a a, a message to uh, all you musicians out there. If there's something messed up with your voice, that's the best time to record because you might never, ever get that problem with your voice again. So if you have a really bad cold, you have laryngitis, you can barely talk, that's when you should sing, in my opinion. And thanks for listening. If you have any questions, you want to give me some feedback, check me out on Facebook or Twitter or write write a review on the iTunes page. And I'll try to get these out regularly. Ideally, I'd like to get these out maybe once a week, but I'd, I know I'm probably not going to make that right now. So at least uh, I will try to get this, get the next one out as soon as I can. I think I'll, I'll have another inter- interesting interview and some other material uh, for you. So check it out. Have a good one. See you next week or whenever for more Hunting for Candlelands. Where is the remote in a remote location? You pass Everest and pride to your destination. Nah, I'm just kidding. I don't believe in hell, but that's a purgatory well. As I'm walking past the mirror, I think I'm holier than thou. I've got more pores than standards now. And I am not, no, why not a work of art? Got a random access memory full of images I've seen. A car, a field, a coffin, a child on a grave. Crying at my birthday party, it was more than I could handle. A Sisyphus making a wish on reignited candles. Or of that night, I told my wife a tearful, sad admission. I don't want to be an English teacher, I want to be a musician, but I'm not. Oh my